The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 21st, 2020. On this week's show, we'll talk about how the Kansas City Chiefs and San Francisco 49ers made it to Super Bowl 54. We'll also assess the new Netflix documentary, Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez. And finally, the iconic duo of Stefan Fatsis and Mike Pesca will interview the greatest Jeopardy player of all time, Ken Jennings. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio, we're together for the first time in a long time. It's the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the aforementioned Mr. Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. First time, long time. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a minute. It's been like three weeks. I'm not in New Orleans anymore. No, you're back. Good to, good to be home. I'm glad you're back. And with us from Palo Alto, our insurance policy against being accused of East Coast bias, it is the host of Slow Burn Season 3, Slate's own Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. Hello. I'm both a West Coast and Gulf Coast elite. I was actually thinking about this, that we do not represent the Midwest, the great, amazing Midwest, the third coast, as some call it the coast of Lake Michigan. Mm. The show is just designed to attack Midwestern values and flyover values. That's what we stand for. I've been to all the lake states. (laughs) You've been there? Yeah. What else could they possibly want from us? Exactly. I've been to Minnesota at least three times. Hey, man, I wrote a book that was based in the Midwest. We should tout that book, Wild and Outside. It's another insurance policy for us. Everyone should love and respect us. From Thunder Bay to Sioux City, I've hit them all. (laughs) Joel, you've got the live tour for Slow Burn coming up. D.C. on the 5th of February, New York on the 6th, L.A. on the 11th, San Francisco on the 13th. And Mm, you've got some... No flyover stops (laughs) there either. I thought I was just going to gloss right over that. Thank you, (laughs) Stephen. And there are some guests being announced. The L.A. show in particular, you've got an onstage confrontation that we're looking forward to. Yeah, it's going to be the two foremost experts into the murder investigations of Biggie and Pac, and they've never confronted each other before, and they've been champing at the bit to get at each other. And so we're going to bring them together for the first time and let them have at it. I'm going to moderate. I'm not going to allow it to devolve into like Jerry Springer or anything, but I can only do so much. Maybe I should say it's going to devolve into Jerry Springer, in which case people will show up. Either way, I think either kind of cool-headedness or chair throwing, I would be there for either. Slate.com slash live if you want to watch Joel's moderation skills in person. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Sunday in Kansas City and in San Francisco, the Chiefs and the 49ers were not given that much resistance and their uh, paths to the Super Bowl. The Chiefs beat uh, the Titans 35 to 24. The 49ers beat the Packers. 37 to 20 after going out to a 27 to nothing lead. And the kind of cool thing about this, Stefan, was that the Chiefs led by Patrick Mahomes and their passing attack and one very nice long run by Mahomes as well, just totally dominated and demolished the Titans led by their running game. And then 
in San Francisco. The 49ers just ran right over the Packers. Jimmy Garoppolo had just eight passing attempts. But this shows that there are many different ways to win in the NFL, even in an era dominated by passing. Yeah. I mean, Garoppolo did complete 75% of his passes, which was very, very impressive. But he didn't need to pass. Raheem Mostert ran for 200-plus yards, scored three touchdowns. Four touchdowns. Don't short Four touchdowns. I forgot. There was the, the non-rushing touchdown. And they just completely dominated the Packers' defense. I mean, NFL teams are still very good at adjusting to who the competition is. And I think you saw the 49ers obviously do that. That does not mean that the 49ers are going to rely entirely on the rushing game in the Super Bowl. It wouldn't surprise me to see a very different sort of structure in two weeks. So the best human interest story here is Mostert, Joel, cut by six teams in an 18-month span. And yet, I want to praise the guy, but he was running through some very large holes. Gigantic. From an offensive line. I know you're a running back guy, so how much should we love and respect the work of Mr. Mostert versus the 49ers offensive line? I think Alex Kirshner of SB Nation had like one of the great tweets. He's like, for every every NFL postseason there becomes this star from East Lafayette State who, you know, b- briefly becomes the most one of the most famous people in the NFL. And that's Raheem Mostert. I mean, there's always it, like the it's like the Timmy Smith Memorial Award where it's just like the one running back has this great performance or maybe two great performances. You've never heard of him before. You don't know where he came from. And, you know, he like captivates the NFL for a little bit. And that's Raheem. I don't know that Raheem is great. I mean, I actually, I think we should know that Raheem Mostert is not great because if he were, it would have occurred to one of the six NFL teams that cut him before or even the 49ers, which kind of had him saddled behind Tevin Coleman and Matt Breida for the longest. So I wouldn't like count on Raheem Mostert being the Super Bowl MVP. I wouldn't count on him running for 200 yards or even 100 yards uh, next week um, or whatever the Super Bowl happens two weeks from now. But I do think that it's representative of Kyle Shanahan's offensive game plan, the fact that he just sticks to the run, the fact that the Green Bay Packers didn't provide much resistance, and that, yeah, like anybody, like I could have probably run for about a good 50 or 60 yards behind that. I'm not going to say that I could have run for 100, but at least 50 or 60. I think you could run for at least 150, Joel. Joel's yeah. <laughs> the rare guy who, when he says, even I could have run through that hole, there's like, I liked the kind like of- like a 20... 30% chance that yeah, he could yeah. have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like that yeah. you only gave yourself about 25% of the yards. Respect, respect for that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I respect his craft. He's a professional. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing that leaps out to me about this is that Raheem Mostert is an incredibly familiar story. Raheem Mostert is the typical NFL player. Getting yeah. cut six mm. times is not yeah. unusual in the National right. Football League. Being the third string running back at the start of a season and ascending to the top role, or at least a shared role, which is what really happened after Matt Breida got hurt. Um, Coleman and Mostert sort of, you know, alternated weeks where one of them was running for 100-plus yards, and I had both of them on my fantasy team, and inevitably I played one of the one. I played oh. the one that didn't play. Can we create a, a like and, a jar that yes. I put on the table here? Yes, for, you can. T- yeah, a, a dollar team. jar. Yes, absolutely. I think yeah. it should be minimum ten dollars. But, but this continue. is this is relevant. <laughs> this is relevant because I had them both, and I would play one one week, and he'd run oh. for two hundred yards, and he'd be on my bench. Um, anyway, so relevant, yeah, <laughs> yeah. deeply relevant, it's deeply relevant. But again, like in an NFL where running backs are viewed as commodities, get hurt frequently. And the talent level of all of these men is incredibly high. It is not surprising when one of these guys emerges and does something remarkable 
during the course of a season. Actually, that's a really good point because the margins between like who's great and who's like a below average NFL running back are really small. Small. Like Ezekiel Elliott is a great running back, but is he that much better than Raheem Mostert? Who's to really say? And so it's like actually the 49ers, like the way that they've constructed their roster, which they just kind of throw running backs at you. There's like, oh, well, let's try this guy. Oh, let's try this guy. Let's try that guy. It kind of shows you, I mean, unfortunately, as a former running back, it's like, ah, uh, those guys are actually not that valuable in the NFL. And a lot of people could run for a lot of yards in the right system behind the right line with the right quarterback. Can you guys explain the Shanahan zone blocking scheme? Because that gets tossed out kind of every time, a whether it's a Mike Shanahan team or a Kyle <laughs> Shanahan team. And I must say, nepotism works. That for <laughs> decades, whether it's like, getting Terrell Davis off the scrap heap or, you know, the name that's popping into my mind is Orlandis Gary. I was about to say Orlandis Gary. It's the thing that connects them all is a particular strategy and approach to running an offense that it seems like Kyle Shanahan has succeeded in applying in San Francisco. So how does that work? Why does it work? I can't explain the intricacies, even though they were explained to me like <laughs> ad nauseum when I was in Denver's <laughs> camp because it didn't they, attach like, to your brain. did not attach to my brain. But I will say that Kyle Shanahan learned at the feet of his father and his father made a career out of not having star running backs with very few exceptions and winning Super Bowls with you know, with whoever was there. Well, I mean, if all it took was deciding not to have a star running back, I think a lot more NFL coaches would well, have been Well, that's what I mean. Successful. So he was able to do something with this rotating cast of running backs and never really sweating whether he had one of the top five backs in the NFL. And obviously he did sometimes. I mean, Terrell Davis was a, a incredible, one of the top five backs in the NFL during his career. So it helped to have Terrell Davis, but for the bulk of the career, and Shanahan won more games than he lost, you know, almost every season that he was the head coach. This was his system, and his system had something to do with with what Joel will now explain is how you can succeed that way. I'm sure football heads or people that, you know, the Bill Barnwells of the world will probably be really critical. But I think that the easiest way for me to explain it and the way that I understand it is that the Shanahan offense relies less on the big, burly 350-pound lineman and more on the 300-pound lineman, which is still a huge human being, <laughs> but not <laughs> but not necessarily more the, mobile. the behemoths. Right. A more mobile guy that blocks space rather than a man, which can be confusing to defense because usually you're, you're uh, blocking a person head up from you, but you're blocking more space and you're depending on guys to sort of... Um, you know, running those gaps in that way, as opposed to just like man on man dominating a dude. And that can be a little confusing for defensive linemen sometimes. And so like, that's how the zone offense or the zone blocking scheme is effective. And that obviously everybody can't do it. Everybody doesn't do it. It's not as easy as it looks, but the Shanahan's has sort of perfected that. Does that sound right? When that I, sounds I right. I mean, way, more so, mobile, yeah. more able to move laterally, quicker release, getting off the line and running in, in one direction or another. Falcons fans are probably wishing that the Kyle Shanahan offense had run the ball more when they were ahead 28 to 3 against the uh the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Although you mentioned Bill Barnwell. He did say it wasn't Kyle Shanahan's fault. That it wasn't that the play calling was not to blame for the Falcons blowing that lead. I will leave that as a topic for further study for our for our listeners. But I mentioned jokingly the nepotism thing, but Sean McVay in last year's Super Bowl, Bill Belichick, fathers, family legacies in coaching. And Kyle Shanahan certainly has that. Robert Sala, the defensive coordinator for the 49ers, who 
I think everybody thinks is going to get a head coaching job after the season has an opposite story. He comes from Arab American family in, in Dearborn, Michigan, the first real Arab American coach to have achieved this level of prominence in the NFL, decided to pursue coaching after his brother was nearly killed on 9-11. He worked at Morgan Stanley and, you know, he absorbed the lesson there that life is short and he was unhappy in his particular. Robert Salas had a banking job, went and kind of climbed up from the very bottom of the coaching rungs. Graduate assistant, yeah. Now to being this hot commodity. And so I think the lesson here isn't that guys like Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay shouldn't be given opportunities. The lesson is that people like Robert Sala, too, should be given a chance to climb this this ladder, too, and that there should be given opportunities to people to prove that they can do it just as well as the coach's son can do it. And I think you're right. I think it's that, that someone like Sala is the exception that proves the rule. Mina Kimes pointed out on Twitter, it's not that Kyle Shanahan isn't qualified to be an NFL head coach. It's that young black men or young coaches of color uh, don't get the first chance that Kyle Shanahan got when he was two years old, you know, going to work with his dad. Um, They don't get the chance, they don't get mentored, and they don't get promoted in the way that legacies like Shanahan and others do. Right. And I mean, you think about it, I mean, Chan Gailey is back in the NFL again. You know what I mean? I mean, you would think that just by looking at different sorts, like you expanding your pool, Essentially, when you look at, you know, um, when, if you look outside of like your fa- your family or you look out, outside of this particular network that you're used to, you get the Salas, you get, you know, the Brian Floreses, whoever, bringing in people that are outside of that network may bring new ideas, new ways of approaching football. And you'd think that NFL teams would like see that inefficiency there. They'd be like, ah, maybe we should try something else. Maybe we should not go back to having Chan Gailey, you know, run our offense or something like that. And in that way that you you might be able to find an advantage to, relative to your competitors, but um, that's not something that happens. And so, yeah, Robert Sala is 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 an example of, of, of what happens when you look outside of the norm. But let's also, like, it's only this year that the 49ers defense has, like, gotten so good that people would say, hey, he's a head coaching candidate, right? Like, it's not like they had, like, this track record of, like, <laughs> of, of of dominance where anybody, where everybody was like, oh, wow, we're really looking for Robert Sala. He's he's a dude that, you know, we, we see as a head coaching candidate. He he is fortunate enough to have had this one year in this high profile situation and capitalized on it. But if not for this fortuitous sequence of events, we would not be talking about him. But that's also sort of the thing that like we shouldn't always use, you know, any any given year's results in determining who's worthy and who's not of being a head coaching candidate. Yeah, I mean, with anybody who hasn't been a head coach before now, he just has assuming he gets a job, he has the opportunity to prove it. That's that's all that this season does is give him a chance to either stick or be fired. And that's what happens is that a guy has a good year as a coordinator and then gets hired as a, as a head coach. And it's, you know, he, he'll he'll get a chance and maybe he'll succeed or, or maybe he won't. He could be the next Freddie Kitchens. So let's talk about the other coach and coach quarterback combination in these playoffs, Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. And everybody seems to be rooting for it. Andy Reid at the at this point is probably the most successful coach in the modern NFL, both in terms of record and in terms of his influence on the game, to not have won a Super Bowl. And in Patrick Mahomes, Joel, he seems to have found the guy who can get him there. Maybe like a slight not 
no knock on Donovan McNabb, but a slight knock on Donovan McNabb, a slightly better version of Donovan McNabb. This is a guy in his second full season in the league, was the runaway MVP last year, um, was overshadowed for obvious reasons by Lamar Jackson this year, but has shown in these playoffs that he can lead a team to victory because this is not a team like the 49ers that can really win in multiple ways. This team needs Patrick Mahomes to be Patrick Mahomes to win the Super Bowl. Yeah. And let me just say, like, I saw Patrick Mahomes play in college because I'm a Big 12 guy, and I would have never foreseen this sort of start to his NFL career. I didn't think he was a first-round quarterback. I didn't think he was a second-round quarterback. Well, he's one of these guys at Texas Tech who just puts up crazy numbers, right? and it's a scheme thing, and it's hard to tell as a fan or as a scout even, is this guy a product of a system or if you put him in any school in the country would he do this well and yeah like you said it was it was hard to know who he was coming out of college absolutely and in that way like that's where i mean i don't want to take away from patrick mahomes because obviously he is a -a one-of-a-kind talent right like we have not seen a lot of people like there's a handful of quarterbacks we've seen in our lifetimes who've been as talented and as explosive as he's been at that position but the thing that I love about it is that he got to play with Andy Reid. And I kind of get the feeling that like any quarterback that is fortunate enough to play for Andy Reid is going to have an advantage, right? Like they're going to look better than they would. Like we thought Kevin Cobb was a good quarterback, a good NFL quarterback because he played with Andy Reid. And that's all like you talked about people are rooting for the Chiefs and Andy Reid. I want Andy Reid to win the Super Bowl because I want it to be the triumph over the dumb narrative that like if you don't win a Super Bowl that you're not a good Coach, like I feel like he's been, uh, like he's got demerits against his resume for some reason because he's not won a Super Bowl and they've like lost in these like embarrassing ways or people have used it against like his clock management or whatever. And I just like, ah, God, you know what, man? Sometimes shit happens in the NFL. Sometimes you just lose a game. It's really hard to win a Super Bowl. And so like that's what I like. Andy Reid has been a good coach for a couple of decades now, and I would love to see him like triumph in this moment here where they, you know, he could finally, people could consider him a winner and not this like guy who, you know, is a disappointment in some sort of way. Yeah. It feels more fun to root for Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes than Kyle Shanahan and Jimmy Garoppolo, like the, the Tom Brady's backup and Mike Shanahan's Kid. son. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and the 49ers have certainly won their share. No, no, uh, uh, not not recently, but they've they've got a lot of trophies, and this is the first Super Bowl for the Chiefs in fifty years. Fifty years, fifty yeah. years. That's my first memory of watching a football game is watching that Chiefs Vikings Super Bowl four. What, yeah. Stefan? What? Yeah, <laughs> that's how old I am, man. He actually no gave way. Len Dawson that cigarette. From yeah, the, from the photo. He just <laughs> handed him the I'm actually the little kid in the Mean Joe Green commercial that hands <laughs> oh, really? him a Coke. Yeah. <laughs> little known fact. So Andy Reid was the Eagles coach forever. And when his contract wasn't renewed after the 2012 season, Tom Skoka, who's uh, our colleague and is an Eagles fan, wrote about the subhead for the piece is always stuck in my mind. He wrote that Andy Reid was good enough to make you hate him for how bad he was. And he described him as a powerful but slow football thinker. And that's something I wanted to ask you about, Joel. You mentioned kind of the knock on him for clock management and how that was maybe unfair. But couldn't it be legitimate that he's a guy who, you know, I don't want to say genius, but is really, really good at designing schemes and plays and putting his players in position to win in a macro sense. But as a game coach, isn't it possible that some some guys are like better 
in preparation for the game than during the game? I mean, I guess, but I mean, it. what is this? It, at that point, then the standard is like Bill Belichick, right? Like, and then they're like, okay, well, he's not Bill Belichick, but then who's... Who, who has been better over the last 20 years than Andy Reid as a head coach? If you're going to put that knock on him, who's been better? Yeah, that's a good question. He's been around for a long time because he wins so many games during the regular season and has gotten his teams into the playoffs so many times that, you know, he's accumulated playoff disappointments because they are in the playoffs. Right. I think Sean Payton has a really good record uh, in the regular season and also getting his teams in the playoffs. And he also gets gotten criticized a bunch of times when the Saints lost for not running the ball enough and everything the coaches get criticized for. So I think you're right that there's not a huge sample size of coaches who've been Andy Reid-like in that they've had that level of success, but not the ultimate success. I mean, Andy Reid hasn't had Tom Brady. And also Andy Reid hasn't had the fortune of coaching against the Buffalo Bills, Miami Dolphins, and New York Jets every year for the last 20 years. In which case, you get the advantage of having home field advantage in the playoffs. All right, let's end it there. And I'm looking forward to just whatever it is Richard Sherman has to say over the next two weeks. I think it will be a good Super Bowl. And (laughs) hopefully it will redeem the poor conference championship games. Darrell Revis isn't wrong, by the way. But anyway, we'll talk about that later. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Six and a half years ago, New England Patriots star Aaron Hernandez was charged with first-degree murder in the killing of his friend Odin Lloyd. Almost five years ago, Hernandez was convicted of that murder. And on April 19th, 2017, Hernandez died by suicide in prison. Now, in 2020, Netflix just premiered a new limited-run series, Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez, that tries to explain this series of events, examining Hernandez's childhood, his football career, and his sexuality. In this clip from the first episode, Hernandez's high school quarterback, Dennis Sansusi, talks about their relationship growing up in Bristol, Connecticut. In school, there wasn't a lot of kids that were out of the closet, and the few that were I used to feel like, golly, like, what a homo. Like, here I am, the football player. I was in such denial, such denial because I was an athlete. You, you mean to tell me that the quarterback and the tight end is gay? He sleeps with other men? No, it doesn't sit right with people. It doesn't sit right within our own stomach at that time. Joel, this series is part of a true crime push by Netflix. Uh, You just came off doing a series, uh, Slow Burn, Biggie and Tupac, that was to some degree a true crime story, though it was also a whole lot more than that. My book was similar, a bunch of true crime elements, also hopefully a deeper story. So what did you think about this Hernandez doc? Was it just trying to be titillating? Did it have something deeper to say about Aaron Hernandez and his life and his victims? I don't want to be too critical of it because I, like you said, I know the challenge of like trying to add something to a story that has been fairly widely told. 
Um, I don't think they added anything new. And you could, I sort of could recognize as the documentary went along the challenges. I was like, oh, they didn't get anybody from the Patriots that played with Aaron Hernandez to talk here. They didn't get anybody in the family. They didn't get anybody in Odin Lloyd's family that was willing to talk. So they kind of had to navigate around that. And you could see that. Um, what I did think that was valuable that they brought um, to this story were the snippets of conversations from prison and the video, which I thought was really compelling. Like the video the day after they killed Odin Lloyd from um, their home was like something I was like, oh, wow. Like you can you kind of get this glimpse into the life and like sort of the, the, the state of mind of Aaron Hernandez at that moment. But in terms of like them trying to like, <laughs> you know, draw these broader conclusions um, about what may have motivated Aaron Hernandez or, you know, how he ended up, how he did. I thought that that was lacking. And I don't know what they could have done better, but I know that they did not do it. I can take the criticism about the, the documentary. I can look at it and say, okay, I understand what people were missing, but I still found it fascinating nonetheless. Yeah, the Boston Globe Spotlight did a six-part series on Hernandez in 2018 that also had a associated podcast series Stefan. And that's just one of many kind of forays into this material. So this has been covered before. That being said, I agree with you, Joel, in that documentary, the visual here, it's an extremely powerful medium. And to see that video, you know, the prison phone calls, obviously, you could represent that in audio too. But the raw material of this story is incredibly compelling. It's a crazy story. And just because it's been done before doesn't mean necessarily that you shouldn't do it again. And yet. And yet. And <laughs> I agree that you can make documentaries about things that have already been reported out. Absolutely. We see that all the time. Um, what struck me as the biggest problem with this effort was that the filmmakers decided to open what they, with what they thought would be the most titillating and newsworthy material that they got, new stuff, and that was about Aaron Hernandez's sexuality. To me, it was the weakest part of the documentary journalistically. There was no evidence. There were no credible sources, no family, no teammates, no coaches were talking about Aaron Hernandez's sexuality. I found the, the guy that you played in the clip, the former teammate of his from high school, and his father, who also is in the documentary, to be incredibly not credible sources. Just the way they talked the, the, the things that they said, and even factually, some of the things that this guy was saying about their high school careers apparently doesn't check out. He made it sound as if he was the starting quarterback and Hernandez was the starting tight end, and there's been a wave of social media commentary about how, the, about how this guy threw like two passes in high school. He was not Hernandez's quarterback. Well, even beyond that, I mean, like, they really made – it sounded like being the star quarterback for a high school in Connecticut was like Friday Night Lights or something. I was like, well, let's settle down. Like we Nobody we knows about Connecticut yeah. football, somebody said when Hernandez goes to Florida. We're going to show him about Connecticut football. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, so Sansusi, his story was told in the Boston Globe Spotlight series. This, so I, I didn't think, believe him. Wait, you didn't believe what? I didn't believe what Sansusi was saying. I just did not find him to be a credible You don't think he had a relationship subject. with Hernandez at all? Maybe he did. I just did not find his story to be credible. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There was just something about his manner, something about 
him and his father that struck me as not believable. It felt like they were exaggerating a hmm. lot. Well, I feel like you're totally right in that they made a big thing out of his sexuality. And they put that it in the first said, episode. That being said, this it was in the Spotlight series. Sansusi's claims were in the Spotlight series. The Spotlight series mentioned that um, one of Hernandez's defense attorneys um, in the, the second trial said that Hernandez told him that he was gay. There's ample evidence that Hernandez did have relationships with men, did have sexual attraction to men. Are you saying that you don't believe any of that? Or are you no, just I'm not. I'm just believe? saying I didn't believe in, in its presentation in this documentary. I'm saying that I don't think that the filmmakers made a good case for it. If you're asking me to rely on on testimony that appeared elsewhere journalistically, then you're not doing your job as a filmmaker. They presented it as if this was new information. There was no buttressing argument, no other witnesses, no other interviews to back it up. And that's why it. I felt that it was not believable. The thing that I took most issue with in this film is that in print, I think it's easier to lay out a set of facts or arguments or claims and not go overboard and saying that they have too much explanatory value and just to kind of present a whole series of things and say maybe it had to do with this, maybe it had to do with that. But in this documentary, maybe it was because, as Stefan said, of the way they chose to lead. It just felt like they were hanging too much on the sexuality question. They brought in this question of of CTE at the end and his brain biopsy and that it felt like it was like in the last few minutes of the last episode and it just felt kind of tacked on. It didn't really feel like they knew what they were arguing or if they were making an an argument. Um, And yet at the same time, it felt like they were attaching too much to to certain things. And and there is a kind of just as – some a lot of people acknowledge and they're reporting on Hernandez, just a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense. There's no like clear motive for a lot of of his behavior. He just seems to be acting totally irrationally. Is that because he had CTE or is it because he was just a, a irrational person? Like I just feel as if this was not a great match in that this documentary seemed to want to tell us why things happened and yet the why is so unclear. I think that that is ultimately the challenge of this documentary, right? Like, what are they going to bring new? What can you do to make meaning and sense out of something that is fundamentally senseless? And I don't I don't have the answer for what they could have done better, right? But I just sort of like step back for a second and I think about the idea, you know, they're, they're trying to come up for reasons for why he may have turned, for why he turned into a murderer at the end of his life. And so they're trying to tie together all these disparate ideas, the internalized homophobia, CTE, his father's death, the failure to hold him accountable for all this misbehavior in college or whatever. Drug use. Drug use. Yeah. And I'm just like, man, you know what? Maybe he's just an anomaly. You know, like a person that kills multiple people is an anomaly. And like, there doesn't have to be an explanation for it. 
you know, there's plenty of people that have CTE that don't kill people. There's plenty of people that have internalized homophobia that don't kill people. There's plenty of people who suffer a great, you know, tragedy when their parents die in high school and they don't kill people. And so they may have felt like they had to throw that out there, that they had to account for all these different things. But in terms of like, you know, figuring out what made Aaron Hernandez tick and what made him, you know, go off the deep end in the last few years of his life, I mean, there may not be a, a sufficient answer. There may be nothing that we could write about it or report about it that would satisfy anybody's curiosity here. And so like, maybe that's just sort of the challenge here. And I don't know if that's the fault of the documentary or if that's just the fault of the fact that this is sort of in it, his motives and what drove him are sort of inscrutable anyway. I think that's exactly right, Joel. And I think that the solution to that, if you're a documentarian, is to not try to come up with one single framing explanation. And I think if you do lay things out more the way you suggested, Josh, more in a more of a fact-based, evidence-based way, that makes more sense. And I think they they didn't do that. I mean, look, you could have, what do documentarians do? They like take pictures of newspapers and scan the camera over to show you the spotlight story <laughs> and then have a narrator talk about what the Boston Globe reported instead of using interviews with people who may or may not come off as believable. There were legitimate journalists behind this project, Kevin Armstrong and Dan Wetzel. A lot of their reporting was used here and they're talking heads in the dock. So it's not like um, this is just like coming out of nowhere and has no sort of um, reporting underpinning to it. But, you know, that being said, it's still it, it feels like the reason that this documentary exists is more because of market reasons, because there's, you know, this true crime thing happening right now. And this is one of the most captivating true crime stories of the last decade. There wasn't really anything that needed to be figured out here. Um, they didn't get any new interviews, it doesn't seem like. The reason that, you know, I was planning on maybe watching the first episode and I watched all three, you know, because I like to be prepared for the show, but also it was compelling to watch. Um, right. As I said, it's like the the video from from the trials or from surveillance stuff. It's really fascinating to watch, and you know, to they they had archival interviews with folks, not uh, necessarily original, but it's great material. And it's not, you know, if you watch it, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a waste of your time. In particular, if you hadn't read the Globe series or hadn't listened to the Globe podcast, but at best, it is a kind of compelling assembly of existing material. Its weakness is that it tries to be more than it is. I thought the best interviews in the in the documentary were with one of Odin Lloyd's semi-pro football teammates. I thought the one of those guys was very compelling in sort of making this case that the saddest part of this is that Odin Lloyd was a decent guy and that these were working class dudes that played football because they liked to play football. And there's one point where he says, it's so ironic that a football player that wanted to be a fake fucking gangster killed my boy. He was another one of those like, hey, I scored three touchdowns in this semi-pro game. Like just, an, you know, another one of those guys that was <laughs> clearly, uh, right. you know, uh, pumping up his football career. But I think to both of you guys' points, so my wife was not familiar with this at all. And like, she was fascinated by all of it. And I think it, 
kind of going through the same thing with Biggie and Tupac. Sometimes you get caught up in the idea that, oh man, this material has been reported before and you've seen it in spotlight and all this other stuff. But there's a whole world of people out there that have like, that had no idea about this case. And, the, and in that well, I think this is going to be huge for Netflix. Like I'm sure people yeah. are going to love this. There are people that are not familiar with this case at all. And that's like, you can see it being very compelling uh, television for them. And the, the same way I'm watching Cheer right now. I don't know anything about that. I'm sure there are people that may be familiar, very familiar with Navarro Junior College's Cheer team, but it's the same thing. I just like, you know, they see it on Netflix and they're like, oh, wow, let me get, you know, this full burst of information, this full blast of information about Aaron right. Hernandez. And that, and that way it could be valuable for them. The thing that I thought was a shame is bringing in Ryan O'Callaghan and Chris Borland, both guys who we, I think, respect and value their perspective. O'Callaghan, we had on the show, came out um, after his NFL career is over and talks very movingly about his experience of being a football player and a, a closeted gay man. And then Borland, who retired after one year in the NFL because of his concerns about brain trauma. They both have very valuable perspectives. But then to bring them in and have them kind of purport to explain something they don't know anything about and to kind of make the argument that maybe this was because Aaron Hernandez was a closeted gay man or maybe this was because of brain trauma. It's just, it it felt weird to me and I felt kind of bad for them because their perspective is so valuable and rare and to be deployed in this way just felt kind of wrong. Yeah, I felt the same way because it felt like they were trying to background explain these issues, but that their interviews were used in an attempt to, like you say, explain what might have motivated Aaron Hernandez. So Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez, maybe watch it. I don't need to tell you if you want to watch it or not. You just uh, heard a whole long spiel and you can decide for yourself. Speaking of spiel. Good segue. Yeah, Joel and I are going to uh, step out, and you will now be joined by Mike Pesca for your next segment. Take it away. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. I wanted to let you all know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Joel and Stefan and I are going to discuss the latest and greatest in the Major League Baseball sign-stealing scandal. Managers out. Buzzer systems uncovered, maybe, but possibly not. If you want to hear that and you're not a Slate Plus member, sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can do that signing up at slate.com slash hangupplus. After his 74-game winning streak on Jeopardy ended on November 30th, 2004, Ken Jennings recounted in his excellent book, Brainiac, he thought, maybe now I can stop being Ken Jennings' nerd folk icon and just be Ken Jennings' nerd like I was before. No such luck, not after last week when Jennings took down all-time Jeopardy money winner Brad Rutter and newly minted legend James Holtzauer to win the greatest of all-time tournament 
tournament and a million dollars on top of the two and a half million he had won before. Jennings said during the tournament that winning all that money on Jeopardy allowed him to become a full-time writer which great message to all young writers out there that that's all it takes. His most recent book is Planet Funny, How Comedy Ruined Everything, which is out in paperback. He's also the co-founder and co-host of the podcast Omnibus. Great to have you on the show, Ken. Oh, thanks for having me, you guys. Before we get to the GOAT tournament, I want to introduce you to Mike Pesca. He is the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Mike is also panelist emeritus on this podcast. We've brought him back for this interview for one reason. On July 2nd, 2006, Mike had the lead going into Final Jeopardy. The category was Oscar-winning singers, and the clue was this. Two of the four people who've had a Billboard number one pop album and also won a regular acting Oscar. Mike got it wrong. Ken, buzz in whenever you're ready. I am never going to be ready. I'm retired on Jeopardy. I don't have to jump through your hoops. (laughs) (laughs) Is that another way of saying you don't know the answer? I bet he knows it. This would be tough in 30 seconds. I think Streisand is one, right? She's got that funny girl Oscar. That's what I wrote first, and then I thought on it and crossed it out, but keep going. (laughs) I'm sure I'm over 30 seconds now, thanks to the vamping. But um, let me see. It could also be Jennifer Hudson. I'm afraid that's incorrect. Yeah. So it's Streisand, and I should have uh, I should have stuck with that and not crossed it out. Don't cross it out. And it's Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, and Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx. Oh, of course. Well, Jamie Foxx. I guess, yeah, yeah you got to go older. Sinatra and Crosby, that makes sense, because those yeah. charts are old. I just want to note that having me on to interview you, because I lost once on Jeopardy, is like having some guy cut in the 1978 preseason with the Kansas City Chiefs to interview Mahomes. But I do want to ask you, have you ever, in um, thinking about a final Jeopardy, have you ever crossed anything out? Oh, yeah, all the time. Uh, And generally, wrongly, in this tournament, in fact, I I couldn't remember who the short founding father was. Was it Madison or Monroe? Right. And I was going Madison the whole way. And like, as the music is ticking down with the little bop, 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 I just wrote Monroe and cost myself. I mean, it turned out not to matter in the game, but, you know, looked dumb on TV. No, but did you write Madison first and then it literally cross it out? I stared at an M instead. Yeah. I have, oh, cro- okay. I have crossed it out. Here's, here's my cross out story. Like the three countries the U.S. declared war on in the 19th century. Go. Ooh. Um, wow, that's great. What is Great Britain? What is Canada? What is, I don't know, let's say, uh, the, uh, Roosevelt settled the Russo, Mexico. There you go. Great Britain, Canada, Mexico. Yeah, I wrote Britain and Mexico, and like I think Canada was still British Canada at the time of the war. Oh, okay. So I wrote Spain, and then those all seemed right, but yeah. I was like, there's no trick there. You know, what am I missing? And so I replaced one with the, uh, you know, Confederate States of America. I replaced one with the Civil War, thinking yeah. maybe that was the trick. But of course, we didn't consider the Confederacy a country, just like today. And so the right answer was... Was Spain? Was Spain. Yeah, it was Spain, <laughs> it was Mexico, Spain. Uh, Britain, which was what I wrote first, and I should not have crossed out whatever I crossed out last, Spain. Now, so Ken, now, now you don't have to think about any of this ever again. Um, <laughs> you, you Before the GOAT tournament, you've said that they invited you and you didn't want to do it. That's true. And it is, you're the first person to ask me this, by the way. It is nice not to have to think of it, because I, I would still occasionally hear a fact and be like, oh, i got to file it away. 
And that used to be mm-hmm. kind of joyful for me and it was getting stressful. And just yesterday, somebody told me something and I just remember thinking, I don't care if I forget what you just said the second you said it. Like it was, it was an, it was a nice feeling to be out. Except when, when they do septuagenarian jeopardy, you know, they're calling <laughs> you. So. The bar is very low in septuagenarian <laughs> jeopardy. I can forget a lot of stuff. I can forget to wear pants. You're right. I got the phone call last year, right after James's run. And my response was, are you kidding already? Like I have to, I was just on the show a few <laughs> months ago to do your little team tournament and you're already going to call me back up for James. Like it really felt like I was getting called back for a second tour in Afghanistan or something in, you know, in, in less time than the Pentagon had assured me and the recruiter had assured me this would happen. And I, it, it stressed me out. How much do you think Alex's health played into the rush to do it? I don't want to imply that they were rushing against some kind of mortality clock there. Yeah. But I know they wanted to do it. And, you know, while they still have Alex hosting the show in good health and fine federal, as he, as he clearly is, despite a very serious diagnosis, you know, you, you want that to be Alex's show. I assume mostly the idea was don't waste the fan excitement about yeah. James, because when he was on, I was hearing every day like when are they going to have you play that guy right 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 like people really wanted that well do you feel like the media attention around james is run was different in any way from yours because holzhauer was really getting a lot of sort of nerd media attention for sort of reshaping the way the game is played i mean the big difference is that social media didn't really exist in 2004 so i was spared a lot of that kind of endless waking nightmare. Not that you're not on Twitter all the time. No, I, I, I later created that endless waking <laughs> nightmare for myself at Ken Jennings on Twitter. But I, it's, it's true that like in, the, I mean, really, uh, Jeopardy fans didn't mind the accomplishment of winning 74 in a row. They also thought that was pretty good, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, but these analyses like he broke the game. It's true that strategically, the only thing I did that James ever copied was to write his name in funny ways. I guess that's my legacy for Jeopardy innovation. Uh, no, no, I, I was very happy playing the game just the way I did on my couch and trying to, you know, stay relaxed, have fun with it, play kind of a low risk game, win the current game at all costs and don't keep an eye on the winnings line. That does not seem like a gambling term. The winnings line, as we say in Vegas. It seemed to me that on this show, there was more interplay and bonhomie between the contestants, and it was one of the things that made it great. In fact, it was as much interplay as you'd normally have on a celebrity Jeopardy. And so I want to know, how did the producers talk to you about allowing that? Or did they, or maybe the other, maybe the other option is you just, you got, you three guys just went for it, regardless of whatever the producers intended. Yeah, nobody mentioned it. I mean, the backstage contestant vibe on Jeopardy is very much keep everybody loose and distracted so they have fun out there because it's going to be stressful and it's going to be most people's first half hour of television ever. And that's why you normally don't see much camaraderie. What did you say? Bonhomie? That's why you don't see that because everybody's too nervous. You're just a deer in the headlights out there. You are not right. looking to land a joke. And also not everyone is guaranteed $250,000. <laughs> it does put you in a better mood. But honestly, yeah. the stakes were very high. You know, if we had been playing tenser than normal, I think that would have explained that. But just the fact is all three of us have hours and hours of Jeopardy experience under our belts. And we're the only ones on the planet who have that much experience. And apparently it's possible to keep a a laser-like focus on the game and look for chances to have a little fun. And it's risky, of course, because, you know, if a barb is taken the wrong way, you look like a dick. And if Alex disapproves of you clowning around too much, you know, he's definitely going to glower at you. So 
there are some risks involved. I also got the sense, though, that Alex's cancer diagnosis and your veteran savvy, the three of you, you know, you guys have Jeopardy personalities. And you were there partly as, like you said, as a tribute to Alex Trebek. And that felt like it lightened the mood somehow that you guys were there paying your respects to this television legend who basically changed your lives. That's exactly right. And we've all talked very explicitly about that, that like a lot of the best memories of our lives, Alex was there and we associate that with him. You know, like I, my house is the house that Alex Trebek built. Basically, we could we can't afford a Seattle mortgage. And I think that kind of that did kind of suffuse the show because we genuinely, you know, love the guy, and especially since the diagnosis. I could not admire more just kind of the, the bravery and the dignity that he's shown on the air and the transparency he's shown about raising awareness for the disease. You know, he didn't have to be so open about his symptoms, but he he has. So there was a lot of that on the show. We're all wearing the, the pancreatic cancer ribbons. The thing that underlies the whole thing is we can kind of sense, at least in my case, I can sense it might be my last time ever behind that podium. And I can definitely say that's true now. And certainly the last time with Alex. So I really just went and the way I quieted my nerves was just to think, just enjoy this whole thing. Just enjoy every second of this. It's not going to happen again. So I want to ask you a series of essentially sports questions since this is a sports show. So this is about reflexes and tactics. I have long said, by the way, that only sports writers write about Jeopardy correctly. Like entertainment (laughs) writers fundamentally misunderstand the show. It is a sport. Yeah, everyone everyone writing about, oh, you only won the game by $200, it seems insane to make that point when anyone who has any knowledge of the betting would know that that would be not a significant margin of victory. Well, and also, Mike, what I think what Ken was just mentioning is that there's also a physical component to Jeopardy yeah. that is hugely overlooked. So, strategy. Did you, I can't recall, after your initial run where you basically ran through the categories in the uh, standard way, top to bottom, you've been on the show a few times, had you changed your strategy to match the Holzhauer hunting for daily double strategies, or did you know you had to do this here for the first time to match Holzhauer? In tournaments in the past, if competitors, if contestants were daily double hunting, if they were hopping around the board, then I would absolutely do that. I should be clear that I didn't play in order in my first run because it had never occurred to me that you could hunt for daily doubles or that you could hop around to try to annoy your competitors. People had done that before. I just didn't find it. It wasn't what was working for me. So I kind of stayed with the Jeopardy I'd been watching since I was 10 years old. But yes, in past tournaments, I'd been very comfortable hopping around and I watched a ton of tape of James Holtzauer, and I, I knew exactly what you would have to do to have a chance against that guy. And it's really to become him. It's it's the Nietzschean thing where you have to stare into the abyss of those soulless shark eyes, and you have to do exactly what he's prepared to do. Do you buzz with your thumb or forefinger? I'm a thumb buzzer, and I'm a right-handed buzzer, even though I write left. Writes left, buzzes right. But you're also a high buzzer. You got the buzzer exposed. I do buzz a little high and I got notes. So I don't mind buzzer exposed. You look smart on TV. You know, they can see you're mm-hmm. pressing it. Yeah. But I did get notes from boomers who were like, oh, you're raising the button and then pushing. You're losing a fraction of a second. No, that's not true, man. I'm actually I'm actually very good on a Jeopardy buzzer. <laughs> well, I have to say that, that in a GOAT event like this one, fastest to the buzzer is enormous. I mean, you guys probably knew the answers to 80 to 90% of the questions, if not more. People don't understand that buzzer dexterity is huge. Yeah, and it's not just this tournament. On any given night, most of the players know most of the answers to most of the clues. They weren't picked out of the audience randomly like Price is Right. All these people are trivia kings and queens who passed a very hard test to be there. So it is the, the timing on the buzzer that tends to separate the winner from the non-winners. 
And in a tournament like this, they just cranked up the difficulty. They wanted to make sure that not every question was a triple buzzer race. One of the most interesting things I I read that you said after was that the whole approach is based on Alex's voice and cadence in terms of timing the buzzer. Yeah, you can't buzz as soon as you know the answer. It's not a a speed thing at all. It is not a video game. You uh, have the whole time he's reading the question to read ahead of him, come up with an answer, plan it out and get ready to try to time a buzz just right. When Alex finishes reading the question, a staffer somewhere flips the switch activating your buzzer. And a set of lights turns on on the game board, and then you can buzz. And if you buzz before that time when your buzzer has not been activated yet, if you jump the gun, essentially, you are locked out for a fraction of a second. It's enough to get somebody else in ahead of you. And of course, if you're late, you'll get beat. So there's a very narrow window. And for me, it all hinges on having heard Alex read tens of thousands of those clues to me ever since I was a child. It's, it's like your your uh, your parents' bedtime reading voice. You know exactly what the cadence is going to be. And here is where he's going to end the clue. Buzz, 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 buzz. Because you, you have that rhythm and even the pause, you have it in your metabolism or your heartbeat somewhere so you can do it. And there are contestants who don't do that. There are contestants who will wait for the light cue and then just be very fast hand-eye coordination-wise. And James Holtzauer actually was one of those. So when I played, I had done a lot of research, and the best research seemed to be time it to Alex's last syllable. Those lights go on when a staffer switches on the last syllable. I had in my head said, well, there's going to be a fraction of a second then between the staffer switching it on and me going with the lights. So single jeopardy, I tried that. It wasn't working. Then I reverted to the lights, and maybe I was just faster. I was doing much better by going with the lights. But it's tough, which brings me to my next question. Unless you play, you don't know. And you've played a lot, but were you working? worried that just because you're older than James or hadn't played in a while or hadn't played as recently as him, that he'd have buzzer advantage. Yeah, you never know how you're going to do on the buzzer. It's it's can you get back into that rhythm? Because once you find it, because you, you don't know if you're early or late. It's it's a crazy thing. You know, you could be buzzing. You know, Maybe, Mike, when you weren't getting in, you were actually a hair early. And that's why you right. should have been waiting for lights. And occasionally, they, if you're really floundering, they can see. And they'll come up and be like, you're actually getting beat or you're actually early. But for the most part, you don't know. So if you can find that rhythm right away, then you can kind of stay in it. It's a Zen thing. And you can't plan that. I mean, Brad just ha- never got his buzzer timing working. And he's a fantastic player. And as a result of that, never found his footing in this tournament. The thing I was worried about was recall, honestly. That's that's where I'm feeling my age. I'm starting to have the flowers for Algernon experience where I just get dumber every day as I move into my 40s. And I I don't remember answers I used to know. And it's and it's frustrating because it's very much the, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, hold, give me a second, Alex. It's the guy on that HBO show. But um, before that, uh, he was in that action movie with, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the one woman from she was on the TV show, you know, and you just don't have time yeah. for that. Yeah. Just yeah. wait. Just wait till your 50s, guys. Yeah. That, by the way, that guy was, uh, I believe, M. Emmett Walsh. That's who you're thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> Who is M.M. at Walsh? All right, Ken, you got 179 correct in the GOAT tournament. I'm looking at the stats that all the stat people compile. 13 incorrect. James got 188 correct, 14 incorrect. You essentially won this thing because you nailed some daily doubles for big bets. And Iago, the answer to the final Jeopardy question that James missed. My segue there is that people are going to remember... Courtney Love and Jagged Little Pill more than Iago, I bet. And there's a fixation on, of course, what geniuses like you and James and Brad get wrong rather than they get right. Why is that? We just like we just like feeling smarter than Ken Jennings. 
Yeah, I mean, it, the, the thing is, you yelled it out at the house, and then one of those three, one of the three of us got it wrong, or we all just stood there for a second because, you know, collective brain fart. And that's a great feeling. I think that's part of the appeal of yeah. Jeopardy, is people feel good if they just know a few of them. And if, you know, if they get the schadenfreude of someone else getting it wrong, all the better. But, you know, it's the same for the players. Like, we remember the ones we got wrong and not the ones we got right. I, I read a John McCain obituary that said, for the rest of his life, he was obsessed about the final Jeopardy he got wrong with Art Fleming in in 1969 or whatever it was. It doesn't matter what you accomplish. You still fixate on what is Ecuador. Uh, so another question I had is when you're playing regular Jeopardy and you're practicing by watching TV, you know how good you are. And so essentially you can say to yourself, I'm just going to risk it all or be very aggressive on daily doubles because I almost always get them right. And then the question difficulty gets ratcheted up in the year end tournament, all time tournaments. But this one, there is ambiguity about how hard the questions would be. Let's say you start off and you have money and then bang, you get a daily double. Are you sure this is going to be what the normal? normal $1,600 type of difficulty or five times that. So I would imagine, but you tell me, if in your first game there was a lot of kind of feeling out just how hard the questions would be pitched and then relating that to betting strategy. Yeah, exactly right. You know, I asked the producers, hey, is this tournament level stuff? Uh, and they would say, we do not comment on upcoming <laughs> game material. So really, you have no idea. And a lot of them were hard. I mean, a lot of those daily doubles that Brad missed, I was very happy he found because I would have gotten a bunch of those wrong. And I was pretty lucky that the, the one I, you know, the Courtney Love one I found, which I think is a, I was just in a room of 30 people who figured out the Roman numerals instantly and nobody could think of the actor. Um, I think that's a much harder question than I thought. And I was just lucky that it fell in the game when it did. So in the first game, I think you can see me making, well, I mean, not Daily Doubles, but Final Jeopardy-wise, I make a small wager because I have no idea what Final Jeopardy is going to be like. And there's a ton of variability, even in the real game. So much of Jeopardy is luck. You can't control what the categories are. You cannot control who finds the Daily Doubles. You can't control where the flukily hard ones are. And, you know, it's as you say, like, James and I had almost identical stat lines. He pulled ahead at the end because he was outplaying me in game four. And... People at home don't realize it's just all about those daily doubles. I got a couple quick questions, factual ones, Ken, for you. Uh, you originally said no rematch. Why not? Like, why the Rocky ain't going to be no rematch? Because Rocky's a better movie than Rocky 2, I guess. Is that the right answer? <laughs> I, I, at this point, I have, um, I have, I'm lucky enough. I got some breaks. I'm lucky enough to be able to go out on top. So I'm not really incentivized to, you know, lose the trophy again. But it's more, more than that. It's just being 45 and thinking I can't do this for that much longer. And of course, you know, who would want to do it without Alex? So there's only, a, you know, a few more years till his contract's up. Would you be interested in succeeding, Alex? I mean, you've done some interesting things mm -hmm. since you were on Jeopardy! And it's allowed you to, you know, given you the freedom to write books and, and be a sort of Twitter celebrity. Is this something you would be interested in? Are you saying Twitter celebrity is higher or lower than Jeopardy celebrity? I'm not clear on the hierarchy. <laughs> I'm going to put Jeopardy celebrity only slightly higher than Twitter celebrity. Jeopardy celebrities can't cancel anyone, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's an impossible question for me to answer. You know, it's it seems yeah. very unlikely to me as a fan of the show that it, Alex has been running a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory scenario all these years where he's just looking for one very good boy to inherit his chocolate factory. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that they would hand it to a contestant is not, not how I would run a TV show. But I, I get asked this enough that I really had to think what the answer is. And really, I, I react very viscerally to the question because I – it requires me to imagine a version of Jeopardy without Alex. Yeah. 
And I'm just emotionally, that's not something I'm prepared to do. Uh, so no, like I, to me, he's irreplaceable. There's really only one host and I hope, uh, I hope he's doing it in a hundred years as a head in a jar. Ken Jennings is Jeopardy's goat. He's a good guy too. follow him on Twitter, <laughs> buy his books. The most recent one is planet funny. How comedy ruined everything. His first one was brainiac about being the greatest Jeopardy contestant at that time and now for all times he's also the co-host of the podcast omnibus ken thank you so much for coming on the show it's a pleasure guys can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened in 1969 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's american football team for planning a show of support against racism we were really protesting our treatment on the field amazing sports stories from the bbc world service tells their story we became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for Afterballs. Stefan, uh, you saw the story that uh, Dan Coyce wrote for Slate last week, pegged to the Jeopardy greatest of all time tournament about the woman who had the lowest ever Jeopardy score. That woman who has a great attitude about the whole thing. Her name is Stephanie Hall, and she is a big winner on this week's Hang Up and Listen. Because Stephanie Hall, you got an afterball named after you. Joel, what is your Stephanie Hall? My Stephanie Hall is Marshawn Lynch, <laughs> which, which is an even bigger honor for her. Yeah, right. I mean, she's beast mode, right? And so we can debate about it, but I tend to think Marshawn Lynch's biggest brush with international fame came during the Super Bowl media day of 2015. Um, as you guys remember, he was a star running back for the Seattle Seahawks, and he was sort of a folk hero for those who wish they could live life according to their own terms. And so I remember this scene, him in media day, in sunglasses, a baseball cap, staring out into the media scrum, and he just shared this blunt bit of truth with everyone. I'm just here so I don't get fined. We remember that, right? So anyway, you know, Lynch had been hit that year with fines totaling $100,000 for skipping out on post-game interviews. And the fine had only reached that point because he'd backed out on an earlier promise to speak to the press. And so he'd tried out a few other responses over the year from nope to thank you for asking to appreciate it. So there at that media spectacle, the biggest of the NFL season, he largely refused to engage in the circus. And it was kind of hard not to admire his stubbornness. Like, even if I was a little skeptical about his defiant posture, I could understand him not wanting to deal with the media, but it wasn't exactly civil rights activism, you know? So let's fast forward to the surreal scene yesterday when Lynch took the stage at Riverside Church in Harlem. He shared the stage with the director and his longtime friend from Oakland, Ryan Coogler, and the rapper Jay Cole. They were there at an MLK Day event headlined by the likes of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and ta Coates. And even among that star-studded lineup, hearing Lynch talk was sort of a revelation to me. Um, he told the crowd about the box of highways 580 and 880, which encircle his inner-city neighborhood in Oakland. And he mentioned that he never really left that box until he went on a recruiting visit to Oregon, which, I mean, Marshawn Lynch in Eugene, Oregon, that must have just been great. I wish I could have been there for it. But... As he was up there, it was really hard not to appreciate how far he'd come in the past few years. And so we got a clip here from him at the church talking about that. People telling you to cold switch and then when you get in the cold switching and then that don't work out for you. And now you got to go back and find yourself. You chasing your own tail, you fighting demons within yourself and 
it's hard to get out of that because nobody has broke the cycle to understand that we talk about it all the time is like a backup plan but when you see the NFL is so promising and you see all the glamour behind it you don't you don't think about that and I mean at the end of the day you know that you you watch what's going on it's it's not that they they don't give a fuck about you so and in that moment I kind of came to understand a silence from five years before I'm not going to read too much into it but at a very basic level It was clear that Lynch wanted to engage with the game on his own terms. Talk when he wanted to talk, play when he wanted to play, retire when he wanted to retire. And he insisted upon being himself, which will make him more of a legend, I think, than his 10,000 career rushing yards and 85 touchdowns. He modeled a new sort of stardom in a league that demands uniformity. And I just remember that, like, in the middle of all this, I remembered, I was like, oh, wow, he was one of those guys who, along with Cap, protested police brutality against Black people by sitting during the national anthem. And like none of that controversy touched him because that was totally in keeping with who Marshawn was. We wouldn't have expected anything different. He continues here in this other clip. When I first got to Seattle in 2010, we had a a transaction of 275 players that came in and out of there within one year. Only 53 people could be on the team at a time. And we had 275 players that came in and went out. And at the end of the day, I'm just thinking in my mind, like, where are those 275 players at now? So, you know, now it's 10 years later. He's likely headed toward retirement. He just finished his 13th NFL season. He turns 34 in April we probably won't see him again for a while. And it'll be a shame. And if he doesn't talk to us, I'll totally understand. And so on a final note, I just wanted to say something about my friend and my former colleague, Ed Ashoff. Ed passed away on his 34th birthday, December 24th. And it was just this past Saturday in Oxford, Mississippi, that everybody gathered for his funeral. I couldn't be there. I wish I could have. I don't want to do the thing where you make somebody out into a saint, but Ed was a ray of sunshine in a really dark world. He died, apparently we found out you know, last week that he had had uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which exacerbated a lot of other you know, illnesses he had, and he passed away really suddenly. It was a really, really sad, really, really tragic thing. And I couldn't help but think that I went to his um, memorial service in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago, and we had it to the College Ho- Football Hall of Fame. There's so much talk about like separating your work from your personal life and like trying to make these distinctions or whatever. But Ed really loved his work, man. He really took a lot of pride in it. And I just can't help but think, I was like, you know what? He sort of modeled for me and a lot of other people the idea that you can find joy in your work and it can actually be a part of who you are. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I can't think of anybody else that could have drawn in the collection of college football writing talent and had it in the College Football Hall of Fame. There's not a lot of people that are gonna get to have that honor. And I think that's because of the way he sort of approached his life and approached his work. I don't have much more to say about that other than I love you and miss you, Ed. And I'm glad we could be friends for the time that we did. Yeah, I'm so sorry for your loss, Joel. And for everybody that knew him, you say that you don't wanna do the thing where you make him out to be a saint. But you know, I I think this is something that that you said that I'm repeating back to you, but you wanna have lived your life in such a way that people say things about you like they said about Ed when when he died, just the outpouring of from people that knew him and just knew his work is uh, really amazing to see. Yeah, no, that's that's right. He's um 
you know, I mean, a lot of times people are like struggling to come up with ways, to, you know, <laughs> um, the way people impacted your life. And, you know, I don't know, maybe it's because of the, you know, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it was that made Ed so special. Cause if I, if, if you did, you'd be Ed. Right. But he was really a special guy. All right, Stefan, what is your Stephanie Hall? In September of 1971, Pat Horn of the Boston Record American had a big scoop. Horn reported that highly confidential plans were being formulated by an all-black group that intends to petition for an expansion franchise in the NFL. The story was filled with details. The proposed team would be located in Memphis and named the Memphis Kings after Martin Luther King Jr., who had been assassinated in the city three years earlier. Hollywood A-listers Sammy Davis Jr., Sidney Poitier, and Harry Belafonte were backers. The King Foundation was willing to finance the $12 to $14 million purchase price, and black-owned enterprises, including Ebony Magazine and Parks Sausages, would be involved, too. On the football side, Horn reported that retired NFL legend Jim Brown and Baltimore Colts tight end and NFL Players Association president John Mackey were being considered for top jobs. So was Rami Loud, at the time the director of pro scouting for the New England Patriots, a former player and the first black coach in the American Football League. The Memphis Kings would have black owners, a black general manager, a black business manager, and a black head coach. The record American story said that the roster, however, would not be limited to black black players. The NFL denied knowledge of any such plan. A league executive told the Boston Globe that there had been interest in Memphis for a franchise. The Jets and Patriots had just played a preseason game there, but the league wasn't expanding. But that seemed like a non-denial denial. In the Pittsburgh Courier, a black newspaper, sports columnist Bill Nunn said that the highest black executive at the NFL, Buddy Young, was aware of the plan. While Young is keeping mum on the subject, his eyes light up at the possibilities involved in black Blacks securing a franchise. One thing is certain, Nunn wrote, this dream of a Black-owned franchise is no longer a fantasy. Rami Loud, the Patriots executive, was almost certainly the source for the original story. The Memphis idea appears to have gotten no traction, though, but a year later, in August 1972, the Tampa Tribune reported that Loud and Jim Brown had met with officials in Orlando about a Black-run team. The story told Orlando officials, the paper said, is that Brown has demanded and gotten such a promise out of Commissioner Pete Rozelle and that it can be done. The NFL, once again, dumped on that story, too. Nonetheless, Loud quit the Patriots to head the effort. He pitched Roselle directly before league meetings in April 1973, Roselle said, we're going to have to pace the problems of minority ownership. 40% of the players in the league are black, yet we have almost no blacks in front office positions. We will have to seriously consider that when we determine our expansion plans. It could, in effect, wind up as discrimination in reverse. Of course, the league did not reconsider anything. By mid-1973, Loud's group was called the Florida Suns, not the Kings. His investors were a bunch of white businessmen. He managed to generate lots of local publicity, but had trouble landing a stadium plan. In February 1974, the NFL narrowed its list of 24 expansion candidates to five. Orlando did not make the cut, and the league, of course, awarded teams to Tampa and Seattle. 
The Orlando Sentinel afterward accused the NFL of racial bias in the selection of Tampa over Loud's group. Loud did acquire a team in 1974 in the new and short-lived World Football League. After one calamitous season, he claimed that the city made operating the Florida Blazers a nightmare and said the city had turned on him because of race. After that season, Loud was charged with embezzling state taxes from ticket sales for the team. The charge was dropped, but in 1975, he was arrested for trafficking cocaine. The local paper portrayed Loud as the mastermind of an international drug ring. He was convicted for selling four ounces to a cop who was pretending to be a potential investor in the WFL team. Loud was sentenced to an astonishing 14 years in prison. It was a crazy story about race, sports, and local politics. Dave Kindred did a long piece about it for the Washington Post in 1977. Loud and a local columnist named Bill Clark, who was fired for defending Loud, asserted that Loud had been framed, and the evidence seemed to back them up. The local paper, for instance, would admit that it had published what amounted to police gossip about Loud's connection to drug trafficking. They didn't want a black man to head up an organization that might be worth $25 million someday, Loud told Kindred in a prison interview, underestimating the value of an NFL team by a factor of 100. Loud served three years. He would become an assistant pastor at a church in Florida, and he died in 1998. So the noble and progressive idea of an NFL team owned and run by blacks and named for Martin Luther King wound up with its black champion in prison under dubious circumstances. Blacks have broken all kinds of barriers in pro sports, Loud had told The Globe's Will McDonough in 1972 after his Orlando effort had begun. We've proven we can do the job in almost every area. This would be the last step. Fifty years later, after another Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the NFL still has to, as Pete Rozelle said, pace the problems of minority ownership. There still are no African-American majority owners in the league, and there's just one in all of pro sports, Michael Jordan. Hat tip here to Lou Moore at Grand Valley State University, who mentioned the Memphis Kings in a tweet on Martin Luther King Day. Now, uh, th this just gives a little bit uh, more cause for uh, Marshawn Lynch not uh, not talking. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. That's slow burn nine. <laughs> <laughs> Could be, Joel. Mm -hmm. You're the man to do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think we're actually going to do an after ball rotation system. Two a week. This is my bye week. I'm going to get rested and ready for uh, next week's show. And I'm going to be highly motivated because those were two very good after balls. Joel and I are going to have to fight it out or are we going to do a schedule here to see who goes back to back we will keep the listeners in suspense slash we need to figure that out that is our show for today our producer is melissa kaplan to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out go to slate.com slash hang up you can email us at hang up at slate.com if you're still here i'm guessing you might want even more hang up and listen in our bonus segment this week we talk about the houston astros and their maybe alleged nefarious buzzer system. This is what I need to understand. It's not that I don't believe that cheating doesn't go on in baseball. I'm just sort of <laughs> dubious of the idea that like everybody was shocked. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.